Hi, and welcome back to another episode of DSC's Charity Questions, where we ask the questions to people from the sector that you want us to, to know the answers to. So welcome, Mike. Mike Hudson, one of our authors at DSC and a, a long time, uh, not necessarily a colleague, but you, you do feel closely entwined with what we do here at DSC. Of course, with one of your books, Managing Without Profit. Uh, and Mike's here today to talk about that, but also to talk about leadership and, and learning in organizations and focusing on results in a sector where, of course, we manage with without profit. So, Mike, thank you for joining us today. Um, of course, we're here to ask you some questions, but a little bit about you. Um, what brought you to this point, Mike, uh, and what made you at Managing About Profit, that sort of thing? Well, I, uh, I, I started life uh, in the voluntary sector, working for Friends of the Earth and ending up as the administrative director. Uh, and I greatly enjoyed uh, the sector. I then went to business school and spent a period of time in business consulting before deciding that what really got me out of bed every morning was working for charities, which I'd started to do in the evenings and weekends. Uh, and then I talked to one of my business professors, uh, Charles Handy, who said, uh, Mike, if you really are committed to doing this, give up your job in uh, business consulting and set up your own consulting firm. Mm. Um, that's what I did. And I built a small group of people around me who were all committed to providing the best quality consultancy to the voluntary sector. And I've now been doing it for probably too many years. <laughs> and what's the name of the consultancy? Like Compass Partnership is uh, what we're called. Yeah. Nice. So we'll talk about how to, to reach Mike later, but a quick Google of that will also bring up Compass Partnerships if you're interested now. Um, so I, I want to know what made you write Managing Without Profit then, and I'm guessing it's linked, but, but what drew you to write the book? It's in its fifth edition, I believe now. So uh, Fourth edition. Fourth, fourth edition. edition. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, fourth edition. Uh, uh, you should have the, uh, the maroon colored uh, uh, version. Which Absolutely. Is, uh, the, the biggest and the best. Um, yeah. But what, uh, what I wanted to do at the time, I'd, I'd done a, a series of consulting assignments for uh, charities and other not-for-profit organizations. And what I wanted to do was to bring together my experience and best practice between the covers of a single book. So uh, people could have on their bookshelves a source, uh, a reference source, which they could use uh, as a starting point to investigate any particular topic that is interesting them. And this was written uh, particularly for chief execs, for chairs, for trustees and for senior managers who may be new to management or to governance mm. and didn't know where to start. Uh, hopefully, managing profit is the starting place. Uh, and indeed, a number of people have got all four editions on their uh, bookshelves. I bet they do. Uh, and yeah, and it's it's evolved over time because uh, one of the things that uh, uh, has happened during my time in the sector is the quality of management and governance has increased dramatically. Uh, it is so different from what it was uh, 30 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. As each uh, improvements have been made, uh, I've attempted to update Managing Without Profit based both on my experience and on the huge body of best practice that's now available for everybody. Nice. And that's why it's in its, its fourth edition, of course. Um, so I, I want to talk to you about what you would look for in a CEO, actually. But just uh, I also want to know, you said that it changes, right? That we, the sector has changed. We've maybe gained skills, potentially. Naturally, organizations are being run maybe more effectively. Um, so that leadership role that maybe existed 30 years ago, how has that changed to how leadership in the charity sector is now? 
Um, it's, it, it's changed uh, dramatically. Uh, when I began, many chief executives were called general secretaries. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, they were uh, uh, they were often uh, uh, ex uh, military people who retired slightly younger than the rest of us and who wanted something to do with their lives and they're committed to public services so they ended up running uh, charities uh, and there were a, a range of uh, uh, other people who often came from particular professions but without that much management experience uh, the whole uh, area of chief executives have, have driven. Uh, improvements in management uh, and probably the, the biggest change actually has been in the quality of uh, governance of mm. uh, which came about as a result of an initiative from NCBO to look at governance uh, that then ultimately resulted in the charity governance code yeah. uh, which uh, set out to people what good charity governance looks like so yeah, the, the governance section of the book has changed uh, most more extensively than any other, and it's now kind of really well documented what good governance looks like and mm. how to uh, deliver it. Nice. Okay. So a couple of a couple of thoughts then about leaders of of the charities. Then, if you were responsible for hiring somebody, maybe you're a chair, maybe you're a board member, maybe you're a staff member, but you're hiring the CEO of a charity, and I'm sure there's some listeners out there thinking about this right now. What characteristics might you look for in that person? Wow, uh, there are so many characteristics <laughs> that are expected of chief executives that it's it's probably hard to identify a few. Uh, but I guess the things that were bubbled to the top of my list would be, uh, firstly, uh, an ability to grasp the big picture of an organization's wider context mm. and the particular mission it has to achieve impact. Uh, and this means being really clear about the organization's purpose. Uh, and there's a chief executive having an ability to make sure that uh, all parts of the organization are driving forward to achieve a limited number of achievable objectives and that ability to have the big picture and to focus on it is uh, a crucial requirement. The second characteristic I'd look for is the ability uh, to create and manage a really strong uh, team. Nice. Uh, a group of people who are able to uh, deliver the organization's operational objectives uh, allowing the chief executive to free up their time to do those things that only the chief executive can do, mm. managing upwards, managing outwards, mm. being the figurehead of the organizations. Uh, and to do that, uh, chief executives need not to do the work of their team. They need to delegate as much as possible uh, and have a free up time to uh, do those things that only they can do. Absolutely. Third thing would be an ability to work with trustees, uh, mm. and particularly with the chair of trustees, mm -hmm. ensure that the organization has the highest standards of governance and that trustees really can add value as guardians of the long term success of the organization. And trustees can only do it if there's a chief executive who is really able to support and enable them uh, to do it. So Absolutely. those are three. There are many more characteristics. Of course, One yeah. Emotional intelligence, empathy, <laughs> ability to network, personal resilience. Uh, the list can go on. Uh, uh, and it's a demanding job being a chief executive. And one has to recognize none of us has has all of those characteristics. But those yeah. are the top three. 
I like it though. So it's kind of the managing the execs, the non-execs, and then of course keeping an eye, eye on that big picture. I love it. Um, and, and, and with all that responsibility, I think, um, I, I don't know. I see this in the charity sector and I, I've been in the sector for a long time. Maybe I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm seeing that maybe people are seeing this outside of the charity sector as well, but burnout, right. The idea that maybe we're not necessarily trying too hard, but maybe not focusing on ourselves as much as we could in this. And I, I think COVID did a little bit for kind of increase demand for our, for our services. And maybe that hasn't come with increased funding and increased time and increased people. Um, and so if you're a CEO, but also actually anybody in the charity sector, is there anything you would recommend to them to kind of reduce risk of burnout? Uh, definitely. And it builds on my previous response about building a team of people mm. who have the abilities and the confidence that uh, uh, they can take the operational decisions that uh, need to be taken uh, uh, so that, that the chief executive doesn't uh, take on too much personally. Yeah. And uh, I think that also means uh, having chief executives who ensure that uh, the organization as a whole doesn't take on too much. It's very easy in the charity sector because we're all uh, committed to the causes we're working for. Mm-hmm. A, a, a take on too much and to expect too much of people. And that sadly can then lead to ill health, Ill health poor productivity and burnout, uh, not only of chief execs, but also of other members of staff as well. And my experience is it's better to do less and do it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, than to try to do too much and to to fail to progress all of them. Absolutely. Uh, and it's really tough to say to say no as a key decision, as a key decision for trustees sometimes to say no, we shouldn't be doing that. I know there's need out there, but we can only do what we can do, and we shouldn't exploit people's uh, charitable motives and uh, overburden them and lead them to burnout. So it's important to the trustees say to the chief executive, no, sometimes. And it's important, likewise, that chief execs uh, say to their managers uh, that uh, I think, although you would be very keen to do that, I think we'd be taking on too much. Uh, let's focus on doing what we have agreed to do really well uh, and not be tempted by the mm. latest of money or the latest scheme to take on yet, yet more work. Absolutely. I think it's a a bit of a cheesy quote, maybe, but in our project management courses, we use Einstein's quote, we can do anything, but not everything. Yes. And it's it's so applicable, isn't it, to the sector? What what do we focus on, right? Um, So so this comes back to that big picture then. And and of course, we have to make income. It's uh, unfortunately one of the metrics we need. Um, But if you were talking to leaders about other things they might want to focus on other than income in the charity sector, what metrics would you encourage leaders to think about? Uh, I think it's really valuable for charities to have uh, what's known as a kind of a balanced scorecard okay. that sets out uh, what the organization's uh, performance metrics should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the best ones I've seen tend to have uh, four quadrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, and the first one, is about service user impact. What difference are we making in the world around us? Or it may be uh, for some organizations, it may be campaigning impact. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then for those organizations that are fundraising, uh, it's important to have fundraising metrics and to be uh, uh, keeping a really close eye on them. It's also obviously important to keep an eye on the organization's uh, financial health. 
uh, because money ultimately is needed to uh, pay people. Yeah. And uh, the trustees and the senior team must keep a sharp focus on that. But the fourth one I would have is what I call organizational health, because the organization mm -hmm. can only deliver the impact it wants to deliver for its service users or for its campaigns if it's got a healthy organization. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, encourage organizations uh, to track, for example, the proportion of staff with individual development plans, to track staff satisfaction, staff turnover, investment in IT, all those sorts of measures that are enable the organization to do its work. Uh, the challenge is uh, often to get all those metrics uh, together mm -hmm. and to reduce it to uh, a couple of pages so that uh, staff, trustees and others can have a what I call the view from the bridge. Of mm. the I like it. How impactful are we being? Are we raising the, the financial, uh, the funds we need? Or are we winning the contracts we need for contracting organizations? Are we financially healthy? And are we looking after our people well? You say the bridge. I'm a sci-fi fan, and I mean immediately Jean-Luc Picard on the Enterprise. When you when you say that the the bridge, I like that that terminology for looking at the organisation. So it's measuring beneficiary I, I, impact. I'm a, I'm a sailor, so I you're a sailor, use, um, of course. Uh, yeah, nautic, nautical images come naturally to mind. Love it. So we're talking about measuring kind of impact beneficiaries, service users. Then we're talking about fundraising, income financial health not just income obviously and then development of staff i love that it's really powerful exactly exactly and i think in the past if you look at uh, as i did at the beginning uh, uh when i started consulting uh, trustees would mainly receive financial metrics yeah income and what have we spent uh, that's very important but i think they're only one of the four quadrants that trustees yeah. need to keep their eye closely on and that chief execs need to make sure uh, that uh, the information mm. is presented in a digestible format. And I guess it, almost in a repeatable format as well, that it becomes familiar to people who are reading this stuff. It should, exactly. It should, yeah. That's a, a, a very good point. Uh, the, uh, the balanced scorecard should, uh, it will need to evolve and change as the organization's work changes and as the organization gets better metrics but it should have a similar format every time. So anybody who looks at it can say, okay, I can see these bits are rated green and the RAG rating system, we're doing well. These are orange areas for concern. These are red, we need action. Uh, and you can Perfect. see the performance at a glance. Absolutely. And we do this at DSC. We call it our dashboard. And I'm sure that was inspired in part by you, Mike, definitely. Um, so let's say you're mentoring a CEO, then I don't know. Are you available to mentor people? Mike, do you mentor people? Uh, I do do some mentoring. Yes, I, cool. I do uh, have uh, a, a few people uh, who uh, I support uh, nice. on a one-to-one -one basis. So the majority of our work is actually is consulting assignments. Um, so let's say you are mentoring a CEO, creating a new long-term strategy then. What kind of questions might you ask them? And just to put yourself, put the listener kind of in the perspective, ask yourself these questions. As Mike says this, maybe you want to pause it and, and write down your own interpretation of, of what your answer is to that. So, so Mike, what questions might you ask? Um, uh, I think uh, long-term strategy, it may not be a mentor, I mean, you may actually be working with an organization on developing a long-term strategy, uh, but there are three questions uh, I think it's worth focusing on. Uh, the first is, 
What is the plan for engaging staff and trustees, volunteers and key stakeholders in the mm. process of developing the strategy? Because their engagement is so essential to ensure that they understand and they're committed to the strategy. It's not mm. something that the CEO can do uh, uh, sitting at home. It's not something that the senior management team can do alone. Uh, it needs the engagement of uh, all parts of the organization uh, to ensure that the uh, the strategy is when it's uh, produced uh, is supported by uh, as many people as possible. So process is key in developing strategy. And I'd always ask, what's the, what's the process you've used in the past? What you, how does that need to change? What should it be in the future? Um, the second thing I would say, I would ask people is, is it, has it been boiled down into a really clear high level statement of the organization's mission and its key objectives? Mm. Uh, is it something that is robust that will last for a few years? Can the essence be summarized in a sentence or in a paragraph? Because uh, a good strategy isn't a great big long document, a list of to-dos. It is a statement of what's our overall approach to addressing the challenges uh, we face. Uh, and nice. it needs to answer uh, the why, who, what, where, how questions. Mm. Uh, why does the organization exist? Who is it for? What will it do? Where will it work? And how will it deliver impact? And it's tough to boil that down to a sentence or a paragraph, but it is doable. And there are some good ones around. Um, nice. Uh, and I like so, it. Yes, that's uh, uh, the second question. And the third would be, uh, uh, does the resulting strategy permeate all corners of the organization? Mm. Actively mm. used. It's not something you do and put in the filing cabinet. There need to be, uh, it needs to be uh, available and present and actively used by trustees and managers and staff who inform the decisions they take. Absolutely. Uh, and that means uh, having it relevant, having it in the annual report. I've even seen uh, uh, one or two organizations where it's in the entrance hall. This is our strategy. This is yeah. why we exist, who we're for. So yeah. it reminds people every day they come into the office uh, uh, to, to focus on uh, so powerful. limited things that we should do. It's powerful. Uh, generally, uh, in preparing it, one goes into, gets involved in uh, a kind of wide and broad discussion, but it needs to be focused down in the end to uh, a sentence or a paragraph. Love that, love that. And it's a nice aspirational goal to go for as well, actually, in, in terms of boiling it down to something that small. So I, I think maybe you'll say that it's different kind of strokes for different folks for this for this question, but let's say you're, we're, we've got some of our listeners are sat there considering renewing their strategy or maybe they don't have a strategy, they're thinking about putting this in place. Would you give somebody an optimum length of strategy to consider, like uh, kind of multiple years, whatever that might be? Um. Yeah, I'd say a, a couple of things there, George. Uh, uh, one is uh, a strategy should be sufficiently robust that it doesn't require frequent changes. Nice. Uh, it needs to, to endure, but it also shouldn't be set in stone. And those things may be seem to be opposing each other. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Uh, new opportunities arise, organizations yeah. 
need to consider them, consider them against their purpose and the mission statement, uh, review them thoroughly, reject some of them, but mm -hmm. sometimes adjust the strategy to take account of new circumstances. Absolutely. So uh, that's the first thing I'd say. And the second thing I'd say, it depends very much on the type of organisation. So a housing association, for example, a housing charity with longer, which has longer timescales, 10 years of building houses and renting them and so on, needs to uh, have longer timescales, whereas, say, a, a contracting organisation needs to be more agile to respond to more frequent changes in government policy. Yeah. Uh, a campaigning organisation maybe even needs to be even more agile because opportunities come at short notice and one needs to be able to adjust your strategy to uh, uh, reflect changing world circumstances. Absolutely. Having said all that, I would say um, typically I think organisations should look three, four or five years ahead in their five. strategy, yeah. but the strategy itself should be reviewed thoroughly every two or three years. Nice. So two different timescales, how yeah. long are you looking ahead and then how often do you review? Uh, and it comes, it comes back to that first question you just told us about, about talking to your service users and seeing what they want. And, and they may be able to come up with creative things that our strategy didn't encounter before, but actually it's the right thing for the organization to do. So, yeah, to exactly. And the, the, the environment changes, the political environment yeah, changes, yeah. Uh, the uh, circumstances change, and it's sometimes necessary to adjust to those changes. Absolutely. Cool. So you mentioned um, looking at leaders through the perspective of their relationships with staff, the big picture, and also the board. Um, so a couple of questions here. I'll ask you them together. One is about creating a good relationship. But the other question is also, if you don't have a good relationship, what might you do or what might you recommend to the CEOs or leaders out there listening to this? Uh, I think the answer to, the, to, to uh, both is, is similar, actually. Cool. Uh, and uh, I'd make four points. Uh, yeah. One is uh, start by building trust and confidence and having good personal relationships with each board member. Uh, it's really important to see, get to know them, understand where they're coming from, what their skills and experience are, and how they can contribute most. Mm. Uh, Every board member is different and those personal relationships are important and investing time in them uh, is really valuable and pays great benefits when thing, when the going gets tough with mm -hmm. personal relationships. So I'll start there. Uh, the second thing I would say, which comes out from uh, a lot of our governance reviews at Compass, uh, is to ensure immaculate preparation for board meetings. Uh, working always closely with the chair to ensure that agendas and papers really do focus on mm. governance issues and mm. don't encourage the board to delve into operational matters. Too often, sadly, I see board papers, uh, boards discussing operational matters, and you ask why are they discussing operational matters? Because the papers are all about operational matters. Yeah. The chief executive and chair have a huge responsibility uh, here. Uh, and uh, that helps to create a really uh, good relationship with, uh, uh, with the board because they can add greatest value uh, discussing higher level strategic issues, not getting dragged down into operational matters. Nice. Uh, third thing I would say is give attention to your relationship with the chair. Mm. Uh, and 
anticipate uh, where you and the chair might have any differences of opinion and resolve them privately, but be seen to be united in public. Uh, recognize that the chair's role is challenging and support, support the chair to perform it well. Nice. Uh, and the fourth thing is related to that, really, uh, is uh, a necessary requirement uh, to uh, have an open relationship with the chair in which you can both praise and challenge each other without threatening that relationship. Nice. Uh, it's really important that you and the chair together kind of anticipate problems so the board gets no surprises. And whilst it's hard to anticipate all of them, uh, I think chairs and chief executives should always be asking what might go wrong, where are the risks, how do we mitigate them, mm -hmm. the board to them uh, if they're going to before they happen, rather than uh, uh, when the organisations got into trouble over one issue or another. Absolutely. Yeah, nice. Great. So um, I think it, it, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about the, the learning side and encouraging learning in organisations. That really touched on me earlier when you said actually uh, one of the fourth quadrants of a strategy would look at how we include people in their development. And so I think as a trainer and as somebody that provides training in the charity sector specifically, uh, one of the things that I kind of notice, and I know this is what everybody says, and maybe in some organizations it's not necessarily true, but it does seem to me that learning budgets are commonly cut to ensure kind of services are delivered. Um, and if you were talking to a charity, maybe you're consulting a charity, maybe it's a friend of yours that's working at a charity, what would you say to an organization that was considering making that decision to cut the kind of investment in staff? Uh, don't. Mm. Sure. Right. <laughs> it's always very tempting, isn't it? So there's people out there in need and we should cut our uh, uh, learning budgets mm. more money going to the front line. Uh, but it can be a short term decision. Mm. Uh, and uh, learning is about learning to work smart rather than learning to work hard. Uh, and it's about having people capable of doing the jobs you want them to do and helping them to do it better about investing in people's career development as well so they stay with the organization. Um, uh, so I think it's really important that uh, and only fair that organizations uh, allocate a proportion of their budget to learning and mm. so that people have opportunities uh, that they wouldn't have. And it could be an investment that saves you money if someone when careers are develop well within an organization people don't leave when they leave it's a huge cost that you can't avoid recruiting a new person and getting them up to speed absolutely absolutely the second thing i'd say is that not all learning costs money ensuring mm. people have time for learning is often more important so imbibing within the organization uh, a culture of team learning from the top starting by trustees learning about how they're doing and how they can do uh, their job better. Yep. The city management team creating time to, to learn and reflect on their performance uh, and they in turn uh, cascading down the organisation the notion that we all spend time uh, reviewing how we're doing things, we review what went well, review what didn't go so well and we uh, learn uh, from it. Uh, Absolutely. Is, just so important mm. both organizational effectiveness and also to people's uh, good health and their their kind of their enjoyment of their work uh, definitely uh, particularly the younger people these days 
are uh, very keen on knowing before they take a job what a learning opportunity is going to be. How will my career develop with you? Absolutely. So organizations that uh, invest in uh, career development and in learning are likely to attract uh, the best people. Nice. And and I think staff development, you're right, alongside maybe flexible working are something that charities do offer t- typically and, and can be very great ways to attract staff, especially when maybe wages aren't always competitive. Um, so in terms of staff development and flexible working, maybe you, if you wanted to say a little bit more about those possibly, but, but if not, is there anything else we could consider as well as, as charities to kind of attract people? Uh, flexible working, I think, is uh, a great outcome of the COVID academic, actually. We've Me learned, too. <laughs> I mean, in my experience, it used to be senior managers who took the liberty of flexible working, but required staff to be in the office every day. Yeah. Uh, I think we've all learned that uh, flexible working is possible uh, and a good thing. Uh, I think at one point immediately after the pandemic it was thought we could be entirely flexible people could all work from home all the time and actually I think it's becoming increasingly clear that that uh, maybe isn't the best way forward Uh, and indeed I think the pendulum is swinging the other way a little bit now Mm -hmm. and yes flexible working is a good thing but there are limits to the flexibility and if there isn't a uh, a core of time when everyone is in the office environment. Uh, it's hard to maintain personal relationships. It's hard to have those creative conversations that you have. That's a big one. Language. Yeah. It's hard to learn from each other. It's particularly hard for new members of staff. So I think we're going to find a, a balance where mm. uh, people who uh, are, are able to work uh, from home uh, maybe do that one or two days a week, but are still expected to be in the office for a core time when everybody nice. is in the office. Because otherwise, the kind of the notion of the organisation and a team uh, starts to dissipate, and you, your relationship is purely electronic, and it ultimately, I don't think, works so well. Yeah, and it's interesting because we are entirely remote at DSC, but I also worked for DSC when we were face to face. And so I've built those relationships over years face to face with people. And, and and I do wonder what it would be like if I did come into a new organization entirely remote. So I'm probably also mindful that I'm a massive extrovert and talk to absolutely anyone and probably one of the loudest people at DSC. And, and not everybody's like that as well. Somebody joins. Um, we talk about process mapping a lot and succession planning is in this flexible world as well to encourage people to be able to work whenever is effective for them. But I like what you're saying there about still having those moments of face to face. Nice. I think it's really important. And I think it's uh, it, it relates uh, both to uh, staff and also to trustees who now kind of meet flexibly and meet on Zoom. Uh, I think one has to be really careful. There's a the self-interest isn't necessarily the same as the organization's best. Mm-hmm. So self-interest is maybe I would like to work from home. I'd like to have more trustees meeting online because I mean, I don't have to travel. The best interest of the organization maybe is if we have a balance here. And yep. if we, we do have a core time, and particularly I think the board meetings, four board meetings a year, it's important that they are face to face. Yeah. COVID, we can also say suddenly there's an issue which needs attention. We can have a meeting at four o'clock on Friday afternoon on Zoom and a, a, a kind of one item agenda and do business in a way that we previously we would have thought we can't solve that till the next board meeting exactly so, yeah so there are some great advantages but 
uh, we need to be careful that self-interest doesn't override the organization's interests. Nice. So what, one final question, um, and you are the Managing About Profit Man, you're a fourth edition of the book. Um, so are there any tips for charities that are trying to survive with very minimal spending? Um, <laughs> Give us all the answers, Mike, please. <laughs> all your answers. Uh, uh, what, what, what I... I I start from the point of view uh, of ensuring that uh, our aspirations don't exceed the resources we have available to deliver them. That's the starting point. There are, there are always many, many more problems out there that all charities could use more money to mm. solve. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, I think as uh, if money is tight or if budgets are being cut, the first thing to do is look at, can we do this in a different way? Are there things we can do more efficiently? Yeah, okay. And actually, I think businesses are often better at asking that question than charities. And they are good because of the financial dynamics of a business, good right. at driving out inefficiencies. And I think in the charity sector, sometimes we are less good at that. Um, I can remember a time many years ago when I worked with uh, BSO on uh, sending volunteers overseas. And it was we asked the question, could we send twice as many volunteers using half the number of the halving the time it takes to get people abroad and halving the resources to do it? And actually, when we started to look at it thoroughly over an extended period of time, it was possible mm. to do a lot more efficiently uh, when we actually asked the the uh, the impossible question: uh, Can we do this uh, in a different way? Nice. So I do think that. Um, uh, it is possible for charities to be more efficient and it's really important to um, identify where there are efficiencies. Um, and the second thing I would say, which comes back to something I've said uh, a number of times in uh, this podcast, is uh, it's really important for boards and senior managers to learn to say no to things. Mm. It's extremely difficult. People offer you money to do more things. Uh, but always ensure the organisation isn't overstressed and the staff aren't overburdened because burnout, burnt out staff is irresponsible. Uh, and saying no is is tough. Uh, and the managers like to be popular and say yes, yes, mm, mm. well, but actually sometimes, or often, it's in the best interest of the organisation uh, to be really clear, to have high expectations of staff but ensure that those expectations are fair and reasonable. Love it. I love it, Mike. Thank you so much. And I think there's so many different takeaways from that, from the questions about the strategy to the structure of the strategy, through to just your general tips for managing a board relationship, managing learning budgets, all of that fun stuff. So Mike's book is available from DSC and other places, Managing About Profit. Give it, give it a Google and uh, and you can find that. But at the same time, Mike, if people wanted to find you, I know we spoke about Compass Partnerships earlier, but is there anywhere you post, do you tweet, are you and socials? Is there any way you'd like people to kind of follow you? Uh, uh, Google is the best way. Just gotcha. uh, There are lots of Compass Partnerships, but Google partner, Compass Partnership Management Consultants and you'll get a phone number and you can call us in the traditional way. Amazing. Great. Thank you so much, Mike. Is there anything else you wanted to say to all our listeners before we wrap it up? Uh, uh, I say a couple of things. Uh, it's been a huge privilege to work with charities for most of my working life and I've learned so much and enjoyed every day of my working life and I uh, uh, currently uh, uh, not yet planning to stop 
despite being uh, uh, beyond retirement age, because it's uh, it's been a, a great privilege. Wow. Uh, I've learned as much and more, indeed, from the organisations I've worked with, I'm sure, than they've I learned. Bet. So yeah, it's, wow. been, it's been great. What a powerful way to finish, Mike, and uh, what a lovely message. Thank you so much for your time. Um, so really appreciate you joining us today. Lovely to talk to you. I shall look forward to seeing the podcast. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. Okay, bye. Thank you for watching Charity Questions by the Directory of Social Change. So this is the podcast where we bring charity experts to you and we ask them the questions that you provide us via social media. So if you want to get involved, please check out the Directory of Social Change on Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. And of course, to hear more about this content and to learn more about Charity Questions, subscribe to our YouTube channel now and of course, like this video to let us know if you enjoyed it. Thank you very much for watching. Cheers.